This is the Wicked Problems in Circular Systems podcast. I'm your host, Chris Hostreich. Sam, I'm going to invite you on and just give you a chance to you know, tell the, the audience a little bit about yourself. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for having me, Chris. I'm really excited about the, the Wicked Problems Collaborative and the new book. I am a fifth-year PhD student in ecological economics at the University of Vermont. And what I'm studying is non-market foodways in Vermont. So I am really interested in production of food that's not for sale, gardening, hunting, fishing, foraging, and then the ways that people transfer, allocate food other than buying and selling. So sharing and mutual aid and the charitable food system gifts. And so during the pandemic, I've really pivoted my own work from researching those things to, to participating in them more fully, more full-time. And I'm so I'm an organizer of Food Not Bombs Burlington, where we rescue a ton of edible but not sellable food from the commercial food system and mm-hmm. eat it ourselves and distribute it to our neighbors, daily lunches and stuff like that. And then part of Food Not Bombs is also something we call Food Not Lawns, which is just planting edible beauty all over the town here in Burlington, Vermont, where I, where I live. So maybe there's a research component to that that I'm still <laughs> figuring out, but I'm, I'm right now I'm really focused on on doing those things. I appreciate that you're doing that. When I when I worked in the grocery industry in the U.S., I was in charge of all of the, the food diversion programs where it was our job to make sure we got all of the food we possibly can that we weren't going to sell out to hungry people. And then if it wasn't uh, something that people could still eat, then we fed animals and we composted and did those sorts of things. And a lot of the other corporations are starting to catch up to what we were doing 10 years ago. But it's amazing how much food is wasted in the U.S. We weren't even accounting for what was in the field, but so much just at the retail level, just incredible. Yeah, we get a lot of food from gleaning. And but even, you know, large, large supermarkets in the United States that give boxes and boxes of food to the charitable food system every day, you still go behind the store and open up their containers if they don't have just a big compactor and you can dumpster dive pounds and pounds and pounds of produce every day. Yeah, for sure. There's a lot of um, awareness and, and beliefs and values that goes into that. It's, it's really hard to get uh, like an optimal donation program going. And we I mean, we were giving away millions of pounds of food a year, but I'm certain there was quite a bit of, more that was still available. No doubt about that. Well, Sam, let's, let's move on. Why don't you give us the 10,000 foot view of your chapter in the book? Just give people a little taste. So my chapter in the, in the book, What Do We Do After the Pandemic, draws on that research and activism that I was just talking about with respect to food and expands mm-hmm. it beyond food to all of our economic activities and and relationships. And I argue that those non-market activities that are economic, they're they're about meeting our needs from the environment together, Mm -hmm. getting resources and allocating them, but without buying and selling, without production for sale. I argue that those activities are legitimate economic practices in their own right, and that we should give them attention, prioritize them, foster them in a a really intentional way. Folks who think about the economy tend to to think about those as domestic activities, hobbies, things that aren't dignified work. You know, work is wage labor. And so my argument is that because markets send things toward money and not need, and production for markets forces producers to prioritize financial viability over things like justice and sustainability, non-market economic practices and institutions liberate us from those constraints and and allow us to produce things in ways that prioritize justice and sustainability, in theory at least, and distribute them toward where they're wanted and needed rather than where is most profitable. 
it's a really interesting chapter. I think it really pairs nicely with Gawain Kripke's. His takes a look at, at care, all of the care that's provided in our society that isn't paid for. Very, very similar idea from coming right from a different perspective. Of there, there's so much that's done that our economy doesn't value. And, and in my mind, there's so much that it wildly overvalues that it distorts uh, our society and, and, and the outcomes and makes life so hard for so many people to benefit so few. It's problematic in my mind. Yeah, the unpaid work of caring for each other and, and maybe the emotional work of caring about each other, those are the non-market economic practices that I'm talking about. It's a, it's a slightly different vocabulary, but it's essentially the same thing. And while there are movements and ideas around how to value those with money, how to compensate and care workers who are wage laborers deserve dignified, livable wages, of course. I think there's value in keeping some of these things outside of the market and valuing them in ways other than money. But to make that work, we really have to take care of each other. You know, if if we're doing unpaid work, we still have to have shelter and, and food and water. And so we need non-market networks to take care of each other's needs in, in that way, too. You remind me of Michael Sandel's book. I think it's called What Money Can't Buy, which, which talked about how capitalism in recent decades has kind of invaded parts of our lives where there weren't financial or economic values attached to certain things. There were things that you were supposed to do as a member of society and, you know, that there wasn't a some, something that you paid someone or they paid you to do. And, and by invading those territories, we, we really kind of created some, some serious imbalances. That Michael Sandel book was a big inspiration for me in, in narrowing down my dissertation topic. So Sandel asks, what are, what are the things that markets shouldn't govern? What parts of our society, as the title suggests, shouldn't money be able to buy? And so he talks about things like human organs and like places in line for things. In my reading about food systems in the first couple of years of my dissertation, I, I realized, wow, maybe large parts of the food system should should exist outside the market since markets direct food toward money and, and not hunger. I started realizing that here in Vermont, non-market food practices are already ubiquitous and, and they're just not studied from an economic perspective. I've, I've often wondered what it would be like if our big cities were just lined with fruit trees and you know if you needed an apple or a banana or whatever you just grabbed it and moved on about right. your business well let's uh let, let's move on i know another of your your big areas of interest is degrowth we've got a chapter in the book about that from Ricardo mastini but could you just give listeners a, a really quick overview of what that idea is yeah degrowth is the idea that societies should organize themselves around goals other than growth and in rich countries, organizing our, ourselves around goals like justice and sustainability, for example, rather than growth, would entail an enormous contraction of our oversized economies. And so mm -hmm. degrowth is both that change in the goal and the sort of sets of both bottom-up organizing and top-down policies that are needed to create an economy that no longer needs to grow to function. Now, Ricardo is a, a, a great person to write the chapter about degrowth for what do we do after the pandemic? Because his research has been on how to design a Green New Deal, this big policy package for transforming energy systems and, and much else in society to be low carbon, how to do that in a way that isn't just restarting growth. Yeah, when, when I talk to people about degrowth, when they've never heard of it before, 
the the thing that I think people get hung up on is is like economic indicators, which I mean, those are obviously tied to anything we do with resources. But what I, I tell people to do is just completely set the economy aside. Don't think about the numbers get reported in the newspapers and all that. Think about all of the resources we use. We use far too much and we use a lot of it in ways that are not productive, that are, that are, are actually destructive. So what I say is, you know, what we have to do is figure out how to use an amount of resources the planet can handle, that it can take what we do, take our waste and, and and break it back down just like an ecosystem normally would while not burning down our our resources for future generations i think that's you know it's an, an abstract way of looking at it but it also helps people think about things think about it in a different perspective rather than just thinking about you know the economic indicators which i i don't care what they put in the in the ones and zeros but you know can we can we figure out a way to live within the the planetary boundaries is that's all i'm care i care about right on and and one one thing that you find if you chart global gdp or gross world product with the total amount of material extraction over the last 50 years is that to produce $1 of GDP, it basically takes about one kilogram of materials. And the relationship has been about as tight a correlation as you, as you see anywhere outside of a laboratory. Degrowth stems from the hypothesis that, well, if you're going to limit resource use to, to that which can be sustained, then that's going to imply mm-hmm. a reduction in total economic activity. And we need to to plan for that and right. to be prepared for it and to transition to a smaller economy in, in a way that's fair and equitable. I just look at it as you know, it, it's time for our economies to get in line with reality because we can only do what we're doing for, for so long and, and we're obviously going to create more and more havoc the longer we do it. Let's jump on to something that I think is really interesting that you've done. You went, I think it was a few years back, to the Breakthrough Institute, one of their events, and and kind of shared some of your ideas with a group that probably didn't align very well with your views. Can you share a little bit about why you did that, what you were trying to do, and maybe what, what you felt like the outcome of that was? Yeah, well, I went because they invited me. I had been <laughs> studying eco-modernism for three or four years at that point with my mentor and colleague, Yurgos Kallis, uh, ecological economist mm-hmm. in Barcelona. And we've been studying both the discourse and history of eco-modernism as a set of ideas, but also the sort of the scientific evidence around their factual claims. And, and we thought, wow, the eco-modernists, a lot of it doesn't hold water. And so we've been, both Yurgos and I, pretty outspoken critics of eco-modernism. And so they invited me to this event, the Breakthrough Institute that they hold every year called the Breakthrough Dialogues. And, they, and it's mostly folks who are Silicon Valley, Bay Area, technology is going to save the world or we're going to go to a different world kind of kind of thinkers, carbon cowboys and, and geoengineering entrepreneurs and stuff like that. But they invite a few dissident weirdos like me to come talk about ideas and, and people treated me pretty well there. I thought it was fairly yeah. civil. People he- heard me out. People were genuinely interested in degrowth and I was kind of a, an anomaly there because folks hadn't met a real live person who really believes that degrowth is the path. They're just <laughs> super, super sheltered in their insulated bubbles as, as we eco leftists are too sometimes. So I think that, that like events like that are actually valuable and I commend them. I think that in my circles, when we've invited eco modernist types, and I think we've been much less generous to, to them as than, than they were to me. Okay. I'm continuing that line of work, studying and writing about eco modernism, and it's hard to stay civil. I think some of the most vocal eco modernists, guys like Ted Nordhaus and, and Mike Schellenberger, pardon me, have been complete dicks to me to me and everybody else who, who ever criticizes them. <laughs> 
Yeah. Like public <laughs> picking fights, executive yeah. directors of prominent think tanks picking fights with PhD students like me. It's 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 kind of a bad look to them. I, I'll, I'll give them credit for bringing you out there and, and treating you well and, and hearing you out. Their, their group, that's that's fantastic. But I've had the same experience with those two over many years. So I, I'm, that's why I was quite surprised to hear that they treated you well. It's good for them. That's great. And then, and I think it, I think that's why I wanted to bring this up is I think it's really important. It's very easy in social media to get into your bubble and just listen to people who believe the things that you believe and harden those beliefs. I mean, that social media is perfect for that. And so I try really hard to force myself to listen to other perspectives, to learn new things and try to make sure that I'm just not hardening my beliefs, but it's it's certainly not easy. So just wanted to you know tip my cap to you for, for going out there and, and sharing with them. So that's, that's really cool. So Sam, that's um, those are all the, the topics that I had. I mean, if, if you wanted to dig in a little more about food systems or anything, we could do that. You know, to, to connect the, the couple of things we've we've talked about the non-market economies care and then the the sort of macro project of degrowth one thing that i'm curious about in my research that it's really hard to, to get evidence for is are economies without markets leaner biophysically do they use less materials less energy you might think so i mean the material and energy flow statistics that are collected compiled in like un reports and stuff those are just things that are produced for market for sale and yeah. so we don't even know much about people collecting firewood on their own property to burn for heating cooking and fun you know we don't know about those material flows the material flows of food self provisioning at home there might be estimates for for some of them but i think a lot of it is uncounted and maybe the fact that it isn't seen by experts to affect the global picture much, even though it provides so much subsistence for folks, might be an indicator in itself that that it's biophysically leaner to produce for subsistence and sharing, to produce things that aren't for sale and to distribute them in ways other than selling and buying. So that's kind of where my head's going as an ecological economist in, in my research next, and I'm struggling with how to even approach that. Yeah, I, I, I'm sure it would be interesting to, to know more about that and be able to compare side by side how much energy is used, how much resources are used to meet people's needs for well-being between the the two general different pro approaches thanks so much for for having me on the on the podcast and for inviting me to to write something for your book really stoked My pleasure to see man. It. Thanks for listening to the show. I hope it was interesting and that it helped you see something anew. As an independent press, we can use all the help we can get reaching new readers and listeners, so please do share this for us. Also, What Do We Do About the Pandemic will be available on July 4th, but if you're up for giving us a brief, honest review, you can pick up a free copy on BookSirens.com. Thanks again for listening. Eat supplied by Audio Binger.